Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Boris Johnson suffered two humiliating by-election defeats in the north and south of England this week that prompted the resignation of his party chairman. Lightwood, Simon Robert, Labour Party, 13,166. Ford, Richard John, Liberal Democrats, 22,500. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be dissecting the result of the Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton by-elections on Thursday, which you heard announced at the top by the BBC. We'll be looking at what they mean for Boris Johnson's future, and once again, is his leadership in trouble? Political editor George Parker will be analysing with our chief political commentator, Robert Shrimsley. And later, we'll be asking who is in the right over this railway dispute, the government or the RMT union? Should they be offered a more generous pay rise? And will it be about 5% on what was promised earlier this year? And is the UK heading for a rolling wave of strikes this summer? Economics correspondent Delphine Strauss will discuss with our transport correspondent, Phil Jordiadis. Thank you all for joining the pod. Midterm governments always lose by-elections, goes the old dictum, and there is some truth to it. But if you're Boris Johnson and your entire appeal to the Conservative Party is based on your election-winning ability, this poses a problem. The pair of by-elections in Devon and in West Yorkshire were both prompted by disgraced Tory MPs having to resign, and it's maybe therefore no surprise that his party got smashed in both of them. But the result still came as a shock on Friday morning, as witnessed by the resignation of Johnson loyalist as party chairman Oliver Dowden. But as both candidates announced, these results may have much bigger implications. Tonight, the people of Wakefield have spoken on behalf of the British people. They have said unreservedly, Boris Johnson, your contempt for this country is no longer tolerated. I also have a simple message for those Conservative MPs propping up this failing Prime Minister. The Liberal Democrats are coming. George Parker, welcome back to the podcast. So you've been down in Tipton and Honiton, and there was a sense in the run-up to this by-election it might all be a little bit tight, but in fact, it was a pretty clear Conservative victory of about a 6,000 majority. Yeah, I don't think the Liberal Democrats were ever quite as nervous about this result as they indicated publicly. I think right from the start, momentum was with them. They identified soft Conservative voters very early on. But it's a seismic um, result down in Tiverton. I went to school down there. Um, the town has been in Tory hands since the 1920s. And, you know, for people down there to actually vote for the Liberal Democrats and actually make the effort to go out and vote, to work out that the Labour Party, who finished second in 2019 in Tiverton Honiston, couldn't win, then to work out the best way to give Boris Johnson a kicking was to vote Liberal Democrat and then to go out and do it in such large numbers and to overturn the biggest numerical majority in the history of Britain in a by-election... 
it's an extraordinary result and just shows you the level of anger there. So a tremendous result for the Liberal Democrats, but extremely ominous for Boris Johnson and the Tories and for Tory MPs defending seats in the southwest and across the, the south more generally. Well, Robert Trimsley, of course, the other result is in Wakefield, part of that red wall that we've talked about so many times on the podcast. And when I visited there for the book that I wrote on this topic, had to mention that, of course, it always struck me as one of the seats that was most likely to go back to Labour come what may, because Wakefield is much more diverse, it's much more urban, it's close to Leeds. So in some senses, it's not a surprise. But The Tories didn't do as badly there, which I think has come as a shock to some people because they assumed that the Red Wall would just automatically collapse, it would go back. And that majority um, of a couple of thousand is not as big as Labour could have hoped for. Well, of course, you always want the biggest result you can possibly get. There was a complication in in, in Wakefield in the standing of an independent candidate who mopped up uh, 7% of the vote, which obviously just skewed things slightly. I don't think Labour would be too worried about that. Obviously, they'd like to have done better, but they've won, they needed to win, and they've won it fairly decisively. They are, as George said, terrible results for the Conservatives in both places, really. The only thing I think they could console themselves on is that in both places, we haven't seen an enormous transfer of votes from the Conservative Party to Labour, at least looking at this numerically. It looks like in both places, Conservatives overwhelmingly just sat on their hands and just couldn't be bothered to vote. Now, that won't quite be true, of course. Some people will have switched. But in both cases, if you look at the way the votes of the winners have increased, it doesn't suggest to me thousands and thousands and thousands of Conservatives ready to switch to the Labour Party, or indeed in some places, the Liberal Democrats. It suggests to me thousands of Conservative voters who are really fed up and couldn't be bothered to go out and vote for their candidate in this election. And that's one of the things you found, George, when you were down in Devon, is that the Tory vote, I think was quite brittle, was the phrase that you used there, quite hardy folks in that part of the world. And many of them were fed up with Boris Johnson, of course, over the party gay scandal, the cost of living crisis, the general sense of drift. But they weren't necessarily all flipping over the Liberal Democrats. Obviously, many of them did. Otherwise, the party wouldn't have won there for the first time. But it does suggest for the Tories, and I guess this is what we'll get on to, that, you know, it's not all lost. Because, of course, if you replicated Tiverton and Honiton at the next general election, it would be a complete wipeout for the party. Yeah, and you'd be mad to try and extrapolate by-election results out to a general election result. And yeah, I mean, look, that Robert's makes very good points about a lot of Tory supporters staying at home. One of the common conversations you could have in Fourth Street, the main street in Tiverton with people was, I haven't really made up my mind, you know. There are a lot of people who will tell you that nobody else would do a better job or that Boris Johnson has done a difficult job to the best of his abilities. So there's a residual level of support for Boris Johnson in seats like Tiverton and Honiton. And Tiverton and Honiton has kind of red wall characteristics. It's that there's a very large textile factory in the centre of the town. It employs 500 people. It's quite a working class town, Tiverton. And there are people still prepared to give Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt. So if you're looking for any glimmer of hope in what's otherwise an extremely dark day for the Conservatives after these by-elections, that's probably it, that there is still sort of a, a reservoir of people who could be tapped if they can be persuaded that Boris Johnson is still working in their interests and has their economic interests at heart. And of course, in the middle of an economic downturn, that's not the easiest thing to prove. Well, Ed Dave, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, was pretty happy about the result and said that it really voted quite badly for Boris Johnson. This was the uh, largest majority ever overturned in a by-election in British history. So it was uh, an amazing result. And, and and I think the people here in East Devon have spoken for the British people. I think Boris Johnson has to go. Uh, and that's what people were telling us here in, in Tiverton and Honiton. Well, Robert, 
The Lib Dems have obviously won now three by-election gains from the Tories in this parliament. How much of this is business as usual? Because that would be the argument of Johnson supporters saying, look, when the chips are down, our natural voters always go with the Lib Dems, but we always get them back come a general election. But the sheer size of that swing in Tipton and Honiton does suggest that maybe there is something more to it than that. Well, I think it depends which usual we're talking about, So It hadn't been usual for a while for the Lib Dems, who took a pummeling after the coalition to be very successful in any elections. Those of us with longer memories remember when the Lib Dems frequently mopped up in these kind of by-elections in the major government, for example. So it's a return to that sort of business as usual. I think it will be very, very cheering for the Lib Dems. As George said, you know, we sort of thought they'd win this by-election, but it was such a huge majority going overturn that nobody could be certain. And they've done it with absolute conviction. I think what will happen, what, what this will mean is it will worry Conservatives for two or three reasons. First, obviously, just seeing the Lib Dems rising up again. There's a lot of seats. I think the Lib Dems' top 20 seats, almost all of them are, are Conservative seats that they're going after. The second thing is it shows that degree of tactical voting, which is often seen in by-elections, but has been less seen in general elections, is holding since the Brexit referendum. And so people who just want the Tories out are looking for the person most likely to do it. The third cause for concern for the Conservatives would be that unlike when the Labour Party was led by Jeremy Corbyn, the stakes don't seem so high if you're a sort of disgruntled Tory voter. You know, you look at Keir Starmer, whether you like him or not, you're not frightened of him in the way that people were frightened of Jeremy Corbyn. And again, that benefits the Liberal Democrats when, they, when, when the stakes seem less high. But I think any Conservative in a seat that the Lib Dems fancy at the next general election has got to be pretty nervous after this result. And then, George, obviously, if we look towards Wakefield there, you could imagine that Sir Keir Starmer is pretty happy with that result because the key test for him has always been, can he win back those parts of the Red War? Now, Wakefield didn't have a Conservative MP since 1931, so it's very, very solidly read for a long period of time. And it was Mary Cray, the quite prominent Labour MP, who was a very prominent Remainer, and it was almost a perfect storm in 2019 when the Tories took that. But it does suggest that partly people may have moved on, slightly from the Corbyn era. They may have moved on from the Brexit era because, again, when I went there, I think it was the beginning of 2021 for research, the Brexit was still very strong in terms of an issue people were feeling about that Labour were not on their side. But again, there is a question of, is this just a protest vote against the Tories or is this Labour making real gains? Well, the Wakefield seats, the 2019 election, like a lot of the Red Wall seats you wrote about in your book, Seb, it was... You know, we often like to attribute it to Boris Johnson's style and his populism as a, a core component of the Tory advance into those seats. But of course, you know, he was fighting in a very unusual set of circumstances with, as Robert was saying, a very scary Labour leader from the point of view of many voters, particularly traditional Labour voters, plus Brexit being a live issue. Neither of those things are going to be there next time round, or at least Brexit will have receded into the rearview mirror for many people and be a much more reassuring Labour leader. And therefore, you know, what's left? It's Boris Johnson and his charisma and his populism. Now, if that magic touch has gone, then the Conservatives could be looking at a very bleak set of results in the Red Wall at the next election. And just going back to something else that Robert mentioned about Keir Starmer, I've always thought that Keir Starmer could be a more effective leader in some respects for the Liberal Democrats than he is for the Labour Party, because he's exactly the kind of Labour leader that soft Conservative voters will not be scared about. And that particularly applies to places like Tiverton, Honours and places right across the southwest, where people would have been absolutely petrified of the idea of letting Jeremy Corbyn into number 10, but frankly wouldn't be worried about, about Keir Starmer walking in as well. So 
the fact that there's this unofficial non-aggression pact, and we saw that very clearly in these two by-elections where each party lets the other one have a clear run against the Tories where they're best placed to win. It's a very worrying two-front strategy now that Boris Johnson's got to devise to, um, to hold on to power. Well, the far more immediate worrying thing, Robert, has to be the resignation of Oliver Dowden. Now, Oliver Dowden is the Conservative Party chair, and he was one of the crucial three up-and-coming Tory MPs who backed Boris Johnson in the 2019 leadership contest. It was him, Rishi Sunak, and Robert Jenrick, and they wrote an op-ed that was on the front page of the Times together. And that was seen as very crucial in securing Johnson's support amongst their wing of the party. And he's been very loyal. He's been out and about campaigning on a lot of kind of red meat conservative issues, talking a lot about cancel culture and so-called woke issues and free speech. Um, but he was put into that job. It was always seen as a bit of an odd one because he was culture secretary before. And before before Boris Johnson came along, he was a, a Cameroon. He worked as Deputy Chief of Staff to David Cameron before he ran for Parliament. And it always felt like quite an odd fit. But his resignation letter, Robert, I think was pretty damning. He didn't mention Boris Johnson by name. But in five curt paragraphs, he's like, someone's got to take responsibility and things can't go on as they are. It was pretty coded. Yeah, I don't know who's even that coded, Seb. I mean, certainly the words someone's got to take responsibility were the ones that leapt out at me. Um, and yeah, someone's got to take responsibility, dot, 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 and we know it's not going to be you, Prime Minister. I was very surprised he didn't mention loyalty to the Prime Minister in the letter. Uh, that's quite unusual for a resignation of this kind. He obviously says he's going to stay loyal to the Conservative Party, but he doesn't mention support for Boris Johnson, which I was, I was very struck by. And he's obviously very, very fed up. It's a bit hard on him because although he's been chairman during the defeats, both here and earlier in the, the local elections, I don't think many people are blaming it on him. They think it's, it's, it's national picture and the attitudes towards Boris Johnson. So you have to say that it all just goes back to this point that the people who tried to force Boris Johnson out two or three weeks ago probably jumped two or three weeks early. And Boris Johnson has again been lucky in his enemies because I think had he faced the leadership contest, say, next week, after the resignation of his party chairman, after two horrible by-election defeats, I think that could have made a real difference. But the fact is, he'll find a new party chairman, he'll put a loyalist in. I don't think we've heard the last of Oliver Dowden. He's a very, very highly regarded administrator by Conservatives, a very effective fixer he's seen as being. So I don't think we've seen the end of him, but it's certainly a very striking departure today. I think also, Seb, I think it's possibly a case that Oliver Dowden jumped before he was pushed, because as he said in his letter, someone has to take responsibility. And you can be sure that Boris Johnson was lining up Oliver Dowden as a full guy for all this and making him take responsibility for all these by-election failures. So I suspect Oliver Dowden thought that the next reshuffle, his, his number might have been up in any case. But I thought it was fascinating in that letter that he identified himself with the Conservative grassroots. He said they are distressed and disappointed. I share their feeling. You know, clearly saying that he's with the party and the party basically are feeling very disgruntled about Boris Johnson. I should clarify, Robert, when I said coded, I was being ever so slightly sarcastic there. It may not have come across because it was one of the least coded lessons I think I've ever read. He made it very, very clear that he's unhappy at the way Boris Johnson is taking the party. And it's interesting that he was put into that role following the former party chairman, Amanda Milling, when she lost the Cheshman Amersham by-election last year. And that was seen as the first big moment that the Tories were really on the run from the Liberal Democrats. But the question now is, do more cabinet ministers or other ministers follow them, George? 
George. And we're recording this on Friday morning. At, at the moment, the answer is no. But I guess that is the one thing that could start to make real problems for Boris Johnson. Now, he's out of the country. And somebody points out this week, he's out of the country for quite a long time. It's a good 10 days. He's in Rwanda for the Chogham Summit of Commonwealth Leaders, then off to the G7 and on to NATO. So if more ministers were to resign, things could definitely get sticky. But as we've talked about before, there's not many people in the cabinet who sort of have the gumption to do that. Or the spine, some people would say, Seb. I think um, it's unusual for the Prime Minister to be out of the country for so long in such a dangerous political moment. Obviously, it would have been a lot more politically dangerous, as Robert, Robert alluded to, if he still had the prospect of a, an imminent vote of no confidence hanging over him. But yes, it would require, I think, you know, people say, well, what's going to happen now? There are, I think there are probably two main scenarios. One is that the cabinet starts to walk out or even other ministers start to walk out, which is the kind of thing which undermined Tony Blair towards the end or ultimately did for Margaret Thatcher, of course, when there was a delegation of cabinet ministers went in one by one to tell her that the game was up. This doesn't look to me like the kind of cabinet that will, will do that, to be absolutely frank. And if nothing happens, then what will happen to Boris Johnson? Well, I guess his hope will be that the government can limp through to the summer recess, which starts in a few weeks' time, and that something will look a bit different in the autumn. Fortunately, the thing that looks like it might be different could be that the economy is in an even worse situation than it is at the moment. So there's no obvious escape routes economically for Boris Johnson. And then I guess people will look towards next year's uh, local elections in May 2023, by which point we'll be about a year out from the general election. But, you know, Boris Johnson still faces a very nervous 24 hours just to see whether anyone else follows Oliver Dowden out of the cabinet door. And finally, the only other thing, of course, could change is rules about Tory leadership contests. Because, you know, we had that confidence vote in the Prime Minister, which he won. And the 1922 Committee of Backbench MPs that organised these things formally says, you can't have another contest for another year. But there is already some mutterings that things could shift. Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, who's a member of the 1922's Executive Committee, said this to the BBC on Friday morning. I've got an AGM tonight. I will consider what my members say. I will then discuss this matter widely with my colleagues. We will hear what the Prime Minister says, and then we will have to make some difficult decisions, no doubt. Well, Robert, when you hear that, it does feel as if Geoffrey Clifton-Bound represents a view that if there is a big upswell of MPs who want another confidence vote, then one would happen. But it doesn't, again, feel as if we're quite there yet. I'm a bit of a sceptic on this one. It's interesting, of course, Seb, uh, we were talking about this the other day, that the Backbench 1922 Committee has elections shortly. Um, and that, I would have thought this would be one of the questions that people will be being asked. I don't think Downing Street were very successful in getting loyalists into the key positions there. I think backbenchers are going to want people who will stand up to Boris Johnson, so you never know. But, I mean, they're meant to be the party that doesn't like the second referendum. They had a vote, they lost. The, the rebels, they've actually got quite a lot of time still if they want to unseat Boris Johnson. As George was saying, you've still got next year to see where things are standing. So although there are mutterings about this, and I could be wrong, my own instinct is that they won't change the rules. They will feel that's not how it's done. And that if they need to take another shot at him, it will be next year. Well, finally, I have to ask you the question. I feel like I ask you every podcast. George, does Boris Johnson stumble through this? Oh, my goodness. I, I think you only asked us this a few weeks ago, Seb, and I said, <laughs> I think my answer then was, was yes. You, look, you'd be unwise to, to bet against Boris Johnson at any point. So uh, to avoid the accusations of inconsistency, let's stick, stick with my original answer. And Robert? Well, I think he'll stumble through this particular crisis because it was predicted, priced in, and people are able to dismiss 
by-elections. Um, I've always been a bit more of the view that he, he will face another leadership contest next year. But I was the other day reminded of that famous video footage of Boris Johnson promoting rugby on a visit to Japan. And he gets the ball and he, he's playing with a bunch of school children and he bundles through and he just, there's this nine-year-old boy in his way and he just absolutely flattens him. And I think that's quite a good metaphor for the way Boris Johnson deals with adversity. So he's the kind of bloke that flattens people who get in his way. Well, I'm going to stick with the prediction I made, George, which is, yes, he does stumble through, but things are really starting to add up for him. And I think he's going to have to do something. He can't just keep going on like this because if it's the by-elections, the economy or the mood in his party, it's a pretty dire picture. George and Robert, thank you very much. Britain's railways faced the biggest strike in a generation as tens of thousands of officials went on strike for two days this week that caused widespread disruption. A third day of striking is due to start on Saturday, but will more follow? As inflation continues to soar, the government has found itself confronting a summer of discontent with the potential of strikes upon strikes. So is the government in the right or the wrong? And where is public sector pay going to end up? Mick Lynch, leader of the RMT Union, has become something of a Twitter folk hero for his straight-talking TV appearances. He explained to Sky News why he thought the strikes were justified. Now, everybody wants our cities, towns and villages to, to recover. The way we do that, and one of the most important aspects of that, is by having a decent public transport system that can be relied on, is safe and accessible. Cutting staff, cutting services and cutting funding is the opposite to that. And nobody in our community should tolerate that from this government of billionaires who tell everyone else they've got to tighten their belts while they're raking it in. Well, Phil Giordiardis, welcome to Payne's Politics. Great to have you on for the first time. When you hear Mick Lynch there, it's a fantastic rhetoric reminiscent of the 1970s, a nice bit of class warfare. Tell us how we got to this point with the rail strike and whether you think the RMT has a point. Well, essentially, this dispute boils down to pay, so-called modernisation, changing the way that people who work for the RMT work, and job losses. And the dispute started in the pandemic because the government believes because of all the money lost when no one took the train over the last few years, there need to be fundamental changes to the industry. There's about a £2 billion a year funding gap at the moment because passengers have still not returned to 2019 levels on the railway. And that means the government and the railway industry think that things need to change. And essentially, if you want to close that funding gap, you can either raise ticket prices the government can put more money into the railway, but it's already put £16 billion worth of emergency funding and think that's untenable, or it can try to cut costs. And that's where disputes with union begin, because they're trying to get rid of some jobs, make the workers that remain more productive. And one of the key issues is pay, because the RMT are trying to get a pay increase roughly in line with inflation, whereas the government is trying to keep that much lower, around 2 to 3% in line with the public sector pay cap. Now, when we've been reporting on the talks this week, there seems to be a bit of difference between the quite bellicose public rhetoric, Phil, and what's going on in private, that you and I have talked to senior people in government who say that, in fact, the RMT is being a bit more pragmatic and reasonable, whereas when you hear what Mick Lynch has been saying on every single TV channel at every single moment this week, you know, he's simply saying the government is trying to screw his workers. When you look at the balance here between what the government's trying to do, what the RMT is asking for, who do you think is vaguely in the right? I think that probably depends what side of the argument you're on. I do think that 
if we take a step back from all the public rhetoric coming from the RMT, they think there is probably a deal to be done with the railway industry, but the RMT are really trying to provoke quite a significant battle with the government. And they are saying it's the government and their spending caps and their pay restraint that is holding this back. There is the potential for a deal to be done, but it's looking quite difficult at the moment. Well, Delphine Strauss, it's great to have you back on the podcast. When you listen to what the RMT is talking about, do you think they're right in trying to really try and get as much pay as possible? Because ministers have been saying this week, if we give um, not just the rail workers, but other parts of the public sector, big pay increases, this could lead to a wage spiral and that could really bake inflation in. Is that risk real? Or do you think the RMT is right and essentially they should be getting pay rises in line with the rate of inflation, which hit 9.1% this week? Well, the RMT's job is to get the best pay deal that it can for its members. It's not their job to worry about inflation. You might say the same for the government insofar as it's acting as an employer, that it should be worrying about staffing and whether it can recruit and retain the people it needs to run certain services rather than trying to tackle inflation through the lens of pay deals. I mean, of course, it's not the direct employer where the RMT and the rail workers are concerned. They're more quasi-public sector in that, you know, funding for the sector is very much in the government's gift. But when it comes to the wider argument that, you know, big public sector pay deals could stoke inflation, in theory, that's true. If the whole of the public sector gets a 10% pay rise, that would have an impact on, you know, how much money there is for consumers to spend at a time when the Bank of England is already intensely worried that wage growth is running too high to be compatible with their 2% inflation target. Mm. Having said that, at the moment, there's an absolutely huge gap between the wage deals that we're seeing in the public sector and those that people in the private sector are getting. At the moment, total pay growth, something like 8% over the last year for the private sector. It's 1.5% in the public sector. It's really hard to argue that it's going to be the faults of nurses that we have double-digit inflation if they get maybe one percentage point on top of what they're being offered at the moment. Well, let's hear from Grant Chaps, the Transport Secretary, who summed up, I think, the mood of what the government was saying this week when he talked about militant unionism. This weekend, we've seen union leaders use all the tricks in the book to confuse, to obfuscate, to mislead the public. Not only do they wish to drag the railway back to the 1970s. They're also employing the tactics of bygone unions too. They know that this week's rail strikes, created by the unions, organised by the unions, is the full responsibility of the unions too. Well, Philip, what do you make of that argument from Mr Shapps and from other government ministers, which they're essentially saying the unions are not engaging in good faith. They don't want to get a sensible pay deal more than the kind of average 1.5% Delphine was talking about, but below the rate of inflation in the sense they want to have this fight. And of course, when you hear from some of the rhetoric from Mick Lynch, you know, he is clearly up for the fight and quite enjoying it. Yes, and I think it's important to remember the RMT is a fairly militant union. I think some people within other parts of the rail industry think they've gone a bit early here before all the pay deals were actually on the table and that in a way they were spoiling for a fight. But then the RMT and Mick Lynch, as we know, has been very vocal about this. We'll be arguing that 1.52% is just not an acceptable pay rise when you've got inflation set at 11%. The RMT looking for something like 7%. 
I think if you want to look for a potential landing zone where some of these pay talks might end, there's some, been some deals done with other unions in Scotland that have got their workers rises of about 5%. I think if there's a pathway to get something like that, maybe if there can be changes to work and conditions to unlock some productivity gains, maybe that's the way through the dispute. Now, Delphine, I want to go back to this general issue for other sectors beyond the railways here, because as you said, they're gradually coming in throughout the summer and different recommendations for different sectors. And of course, some have had freezes, some have had rises, but there's been some quite extraordinary numbers. I think one of the teaching unions suggested pay rise of above inflation at 12%. And that is almost impossible to imagine the government ever going anywhere near that. And you and I wrote a story on Thursday, Friday that said that 5% is the number that ministers are sort of talking about, even though no final decisions are made. If they can get to that kind of area, do you think it will stave off more strikes from different parts of the economy? So you're right that some of the public sector unions are making pretty chunky demands. I mean, I think what they're pointing out is that for a lot of their members, achieving that kind of pay rise would actually only take you know people in certain roles back to where they were in 2010. There are a lot of public sector workers whose pay is still in real terms quite some way below where it was 12 years ago. Now, I'm not sure there are that many people who really expect to get a 10% plus pay rise this year, but um, I think it's kind of worth putting it into context. I mean, just speaking to people on picket lines outside stations, I think people are quite angry about the rhetoric from government saying that it's almost their responsibility to accept big real terms pay cuts in order to get inflation down. And they're saying, you know, why should it be our responsibility? Pay pay growth has been very healthy at the top end of the um, earnings spectrum. And, you know, this isn't our call. Some of the more activist union organisers have been quite surprised at the strength of feeling among members who aren't necessarily as engaged and at the incredibly strong votes they've had in favour of strike action. Now, Simon Clark, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, told the BBC this week that the government was still very much focused on trying to keep expectations low despite these demands of the unions. It's important that we set an overarching expectation around public sector pay, which is affordable and sustainable. Because in the end, if we end up in a spiral whereby uh, public sector workforces uh, come to expect inflation-busting pay increases, then that will lead to a, to, a, to a spiral which we want to avoid, whereby inflation becomes baked in, it becomes both more severe and lasts longer than it needs to. Now, Philip, when you put that language to people in the RMT, what's their response to it? Now, obviously, their number one concern is the wages of their workers, but they must be aware of how much concern there is in the Treasury and across government, and in fact, the whole country about inflation. I think they're genuinely not particularly bothered about that. I think some of the things that Mick Lynch has been saying this week are very interesting. He's been saying people that aren't arguing for such big pay rises, people perhaps who already aren't as well paid as some people within the rail industry or don't have the same sort of good terms and conditions, that's because they don't have a strong union fighting for them. So from the R&T's perspective, their job is to get the best deal possible and it's other part of the economy that don't have strong, arguably militant unions that need to catch up with them. So I think I'd just add to that, Seb, you know, it's the Bank of England's job to worry about inflation. Mm. The Bank of England is definitely worried about pay growth. The government, of course, needs to worry to a certain extent. But in their role as an employer, 
their main concern is, can they actually recruit and retain the people they need to run decent public services? The real problem they face is that if they want to offer the kind of wage deal that probably would be appropriate if they wanted to get their workforce in the state you'd want it, that either means the Treasury finding more money or it means them making very difficult choices about other aspects of delivering public services. Well, that's the key point that you and I reported is the fact that the Treasury has made it quite clear to other Whitehall departments that they're not going to reopen their budget settlements. So if they are going to give double what was says 2% public sector pay rise up to 4 or 5%, that's going to come after other things. And of course, that will affect some of the big capital spend projects the government's been playing as part of levelling up rail plans, infrastructure. So, And that will obviously have a political and a real impact on what Boris Johnson is trying to do. Yes, so that's where they get into difficult choices. And, you know, there probably will be a way to find some kind of wiggle room. But the further you try to go, the more difficult the choices get. Some of the numbers are set out in the evidence government departments give to the pay review bodies. If they want to, for example, increase health workers' pay by another percentage point on top of what they've budgeted for, that is the kind of money that would fund half a million operations or 16,000 nurses. And finally, Phil, this this concerns I talked about at the beginning of a summer of discontent, echoing, of course, what happened in the 1970s when basically the whole country was on strike, the economy ground to the hold, and that could happen. So with regards to the RMT, as I said, they've got their third um, strike date pension for Saturday. Do you get any sense they're planning further strikes on this? I think they will absolutely plan further strikes if they can't get what they want from the negotiations. I would expect there to be further talks. We've had the strike action. You've seen the impact. They've sort of played that card. Now it will be a case of seeing whether that can move anything in talks with the rail industry and essentially the government who control the purse strings. After that, they've been very clear they're willing to strike again and again and again, and they've got a six-month mandate to do that. But Mick Lynch told me last week, that he's willing to go again and get another mandate for another six months. So we could be looking at a very long series of strike action. But I think they'd want to talk again before they announce plans for further strikes. And finally, Delphine, what's your view on this? We've been looking at, obviously, nurses and teachers as potential actors that may strike, but also announced on Thursday is airport workers. And of course, many British airports are a complete mess at the moment as Heathrow Airport has been cancelled, flights, bags missing. So those workers going on strike is only going to exacerbate that. Do you think it's going to be a rolling wave or do you think the government can find a way through this to avoid many more sectors following the RMT? Well, I mean, the aviation strikes we're seeing are a slightly different issue from public sector pay. I mean, it is interesting that we're seeing quite different dynamics in the public and private sector, where private sector employers, where they have a little bit more flexibility, have been maybe more pragmatic about coming to deals. And you've seen a lot of disputes resulting in settlements. Who knows what will happen on the the disputes that are sort of making the headlines on aviation at the moment. But I think there's been a bit of a divide between how much flexibility employers are able to show. I think there's one thing that does unite the BA strikes, obviously private sector and the railways in the public sector. And that is what happens when inflation hits double digits and you have cash-strapped organisations trying to respond to it. BA was one of the worst hit airlines during the pandemic. It lost about 4 billion. Its parent group lost much more than that. And now it's struggling to give workers the sort of pay rises they want or even to get pay on the long term back to where it was pre-pandemic. The problem with the railway is all about 
the finances, how there just isn't enough money in it to give people the sort of pay rises they want. So I think there is something linking that. And it's when inflation hits companies or the public sector where there is pay restraint. Well, Philip and Delphine, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Philippa Goodrich. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. And until next time, thank you for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.